Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I'm Ginger Birkenbuehl, and I'm Esther Ikoro, and we're the hosts of the Honest Field Guide podcast. Entrepreneurship is no joke. The journey is full of anticipation, failure, hope, and disappointment. You'll make money and be totally broke at the same time. The Honest Field Guide podcast tells you the truth. We know being an entrepreneur is crazy hard and you will sometimes cry at dinner. Listen in to be inspired, laugh, and learn how to really thrive on your business journey. Kathy has never had Cracker Jacks. (laughs) Kathy, why haven't you had Cracker Jacks before? What happened? I don't think I've ever had an interest in Cracker Jacks, <laughs> but I was at Camden Yard watching a baseball game and having the true American baseball experience. So I wanted to make sure that I had beer in hand. Right. I had a hot dog and I had Cracker Jack. I love it. And did you enjoy the Cracker Jacks? It's a little bit too sweet for me. Okay. But, too um, sweet. Yeah. But overall, it was a good experience. Did you get to the prize? I did. It was a sticker. What was the sticker of? Do you remember? No, I don't. See Is there? it always a sticker? No, I don't I don't know. There used to be toys, I think, a long time ago. Okay. <laughs> no. I love it. It felt I don't know, nostalgic. Like it was just it was it was a great feeling. I was just so excited. I was like a kid. <laughs> Hot dogs and cracker jacks. And beer. And beer too. Yes. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Hi, Ginger. Hey Esther. How's it going? <laughs> <laughs> it's going great. Great. Where are we right now? We're in an amazing studio space. We're in an amazing studio space. In Baltimore. Totally. Wow. This is a totally professional recording setup that we have. Right. Um, The Honest Field Guide has gone completely global (laughs) and traveled. (laughs) Right. Exactly. And we've had the opportunity to meet some amazing people. And I mean, the thing is like, you know, we're just coming off of the WeBank conference in Baltimore and um, learned about so many amazing women-owned businesses. And we grabbed this amazing woman entrepreneur that we're going to talk about in a few minutes and talk with in a few minutes. But before that, we have to say that we're in the middle of nowhere. There's trees and, you know, empty suburban roads and it's 120 degrees outside. And we're in this, we're in this amazing high end professional studio, super, super power. Lots of, I mean, Michael Jackson, Thriller album on the wall, Fleetwood Mac rumors. Do you think they did those recordings in this studio here? I don't know, but I believe them because the rugs in here are really nice. <laughs> so oh my, yeah. that, that always gives me a little bit of extra credibility when I'm like, oh, these are nice rugs. Just it's to amazing. walk on. And the, the studio is called Stages Arts. Yeah. And um, I can't even pronounce the road that they're on, but I'm sure if it's you did called a... Cockiesville. Cockiesville. Yeah, I had to have her spell it. I was like, what did you say to me? (laughs) (laughs) Kathy, welcome to our show. Thank you, Ginger. Thanks, Esther, for having me. This is a big deal for us, and I really want you to help people understand what your company does, what is your role in the company, Redwood Classics, and... What is the favorite thing about your company that you love to work on? I'm the president of Redwood Classics Apparel, one of Canada's 
few full-service apparel manufacturer, proudly producing on Canadian soil. Really proud of that, that we're not offshoring, but we're actually on, we're, we're bringing uh, jobs back to North America. Um, we work with better retail and designer brands, um, create their collections and focus on quality, quick to market, flexibility, and uh, bring their dreams and designs, you know, to, to fruition. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And, um, you know, I love the branding for Redwood, Redwood Classics, but um, what is the part of your job as the founder and CEO of the company that you love the best? Everything. I, I have to say, I know it sounds crazy, but I'm a go, go, go kind of person. Mm-hmm. Um, my father and I are business partners, so I'm very fortunate in the sense where um, he really helps on the operation side of the business, the production, that's his expertise. And for me, it's more of marketing, sales, business development. Um, and it's it's been a wonderful journey. So I definitely get the vibe from you that you're go, go, go. One of the first things that I... I noticed about you when Ginger introduced me to you was I was like, man, she's full of energy. Mm-hmm. And I love people like that because I know they're great business owners because like you don't skip a beat type of thing. Yeah. Um, and with that in mind, I just w- we want to kind of understand what your journey is, because when we were doing research, we saw a picture of you with your huge family, <laughs> like an old school picture. Yeah. And um, I'm an immigrant as well. Right. So I want to kind of understand how did you get to deciding you're going to have a wholesale and you have a private label um, company. Yeah. So um, I'm actually third generation in textiles in my family. Uh, my grandfather um, and my grandmother, they were both in textiles back in Hong Kong. Um, my parents actually are in textiles or they were, they still are in textiles. They met, they met when my mom was a seamstress and my dad was an apprentice to be a cutter at a factory. And I so. love that because when she said that, her smile, she just lit up like she lit up like a sunbeam. We're your typical immigrant story, right? We uh, we came to Canada um, in the late seventies, and I, my dad, you know, growing up, I didn't really see much of my parents. They were working. Uh, my dad was working three jobs, and my mom was working full time. And I was a latchkey kid at the age of five. Wow! Yeah, incredible. <laughs> five, <laughs> five years old. <laughs> yeah. I used to go home with a key around my neck. Um, yeah. Really? Yeah. That's what latchkey comes from. I know, but I mean, I just You mature never... faster. Yeah. It's an immigrant thing too, I feel like. I think so. Like we expect kids, especially when you're closer to like the beginning generations. Yeah. You're just, just kind of like, we're, we have work to do and you need you know what you need to do. And if you don't do it, you know it's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's... What's going to happen? Not good things. You, I never, I never found out because I always did the stuff I was supposed to do. do yeah, uh, exactly. I did too. I did too. Um, actually, in in that, it was also I'd never gone to camp. We didn't. Uh, he didn't. They didn't. My parents didn't have uh, the resources to put me um, in daycare. So often, when it was um, summer break or. You know, it could be March break, spring break, whatever it would be. I was lucky enough where, or we were lucky enough, where my father's employers or my mother's employers would allow them to bring me to work. So I grew up literally on the factory floors, um, not on it really, but, you know, just just watching factories mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, during my upbringing. And one of my most memorable moments was um, there's this one summer where I, 
my dad brought me to work every day and I would kind of, he'd give their, their there's these racks in factories. So the racks of, in the racks, there's lots of fabrics, rolls of fabrics. And um, I would nap up there. I would, you know, play games up there. I would color up there. And then when it was break, my dad would bring me down. Um, if it was lunch and then he'd, you know, he'd take me out to lunch. And so for me, um, you know, growing up, as I've just always been around textiles. I've always been around factories. Mm-hmm. And, and I mean, you've also, from a very young age, it sounds like, you saw what work looked like. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you saw yeah. real yeah. everything, yeah. right? You saw the hard, relentless, mm-hmm. you know, um, and the requirement to keep going no matter what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. Which, you know, I mean, how did that impact you with, you know, you starting your own company, which I don't even know how you started your own company. I don't even know that story, you know, because I feel like you seem gigantic to me. I mean, Esther and I were talking <laughs> yeah. about this before we got her, like, you know, Esther's like, oh my God, she's like, look at what she's built. What? Yeah. Look at this. But look I didn't this. build it alone. Yeah. You know, um, it takes a village. I happened to become my father's business partner 10 years ago. So he's, I always give a lot of credit to to him, um, his brother and his sister, because mm-hmm. they started the business um, in 1988 with five people and 10 machines. And they were a sewing contractor. Mm-hmm. And you fast forward to the late 90s and they've scaled it to a point where we were directly employing close to 500 people, right? Uh, we That's how we became a full service manufacturer. Did your father say, Kathy, I need you? You're amazing, or was it was there a conversation? Because you know now there, there's a couple things that I'm that I'm um, experiencing as I'm you know traveling through the country working with small businesses, right? You know there's there's um, you know second and third generation families that um, you know pick up the baton and they start running with it. There are second and third generations that pick up the baton and scale it. They're like, finally, the woman jumps in and suddenly the company that was tiny turns into a big giant thing because the woman's like, look, I'm about to blow this place up. I know what to do, right? And then there's other women that, you know, come into family businesses and they, and they keep, they keep, they keep the ship sailing into the, into the, you know, throughout, through the ocean. So, you know, with you, you said we, so what happened when you joined the business? Was there, was there a change or, you know, what, what is the role that, you bring to the company that wasn't there before? Late 90s, directly employing close to 500 people. Um, in the early 2000s, China joins WTO, quotas get lifted. And remember, I'm an apparel ma- maker, so textile manufacturing. And as you know now, there's hardly any manufacturing of apparel done. I would challenge each of you to you know, flip the inside of your shirt and see, look at the label and look at the country of origin. journey of the family business was then early 2000 and China joins WTO, quotas get lifted and more and more people go offshore, more and more brands go offshore. And quite honestly, 2008 was a tough year, global recession. And by that time we were down to about 100, 150 people. And like most textile families, we were left with a decision. Do we, you know, like close shop? retire, move on? Or do we keep fighting this battle? Because it was challenging. It was really, really challenging. So were you having these conversations at the table? Was this like a we were sitting around dinner and saying, what are we going to do together? Or no. what? 
by um, early 2000, mid, my aunt and uncle had retired from the business. Um, I was helping him at the business. However, I don't think I took, I took ownership of what I had to do, but I don't think I was looking at it. I didn't feel like an owner. And this is all reflecting going back now, you know, at the time when I was, you know, working there, um, I felt like, I felt like I was giving it my all. Um, but in hindsight now, as I've, I've matured and grown up a bit more, I don't think I had because 2000, January 2009 is when my father and I became business partners. Essentially what happened was the decision as a family is do we continue doing this? And I call it my aha moment where the word kind of got out on the factory floor that we may not be around anymore. And and there was just this sense of emotion. I could feel it in the building. I could feel it. It was and like I, pulsating. Yeah, and I just stood there and I went, wow. Like, I've had this amazing life because of all our makers. So how do you not keep trying? Because you have to understand um, by this time, there's not a lot. There, we had lost a lot of makers and skilled craftspeople because there wasn't jobs. Mm. So instead of being a seamstress, instead of being a cutter or a decorator, they would go and serve coffee or be a stock boy at a grocery store because there's no work, right? It, we don't get contracts. So it's not a guaranteed contract that you sign for a year or whatever that says, I'm going to give you X, Y, Z. So it's, you know, our model has always been just-in-time delivery because we are domestic, so we were able to react quicker. But yeah, that was it. And I went, wow, I, I need. we need to do this. We need to do this because otherwise... Our makers, many of them have been with us at that point, 10, 15 years, some close to 20 years. My father asked me oh, wow. um, if I would, you know, be his partner. I, I have this vision in my head of when a man is proposing to a woman in the middle of a baseball field and she had no idea that he was about to ask for her hand in marriage. Did you have an, a sense of that this was happening or were you just sitting there like, what? Like, did you know? Yeah, I think so. You felt it like you knew he was... Uh, he built a legacy. He right. built an empire. We had such. He, we had made an impact from a socioeconomic standpoint to our community and locally. Um, and I think you know, as any founding entrepreneur, that's something to be very proud of. Did you know though that he was asking you to continue the legacy? Yes, because I'm the only child. Gotcha. <laughs> Interestingly enough, though, I did not know that I'm the only child. So you were it. <laughs> That's uh, a big it. deal. I mean, what if, what if you would sit? I mean, that's what I'm. I guess that's kind of my point. There's children that you know. Yeah, I would not have had this life that I've experienced. Remember, I told you I was a latchkey kid at the age of five, right? right? right, right. We came from very, very humble beginnings, like most immigrant families. Right. I wasn't born in Canada. I was an immigrant myself when I came to Canada. So, um, so with that in mind, I went. I, I need to pay it forward. I'm interested in understanding the mental switch because me watching, I've been fortunate enough to, my partner's a, 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 an entrepreneur. I get to observe Ginger at close range. Seeing you, I recognize something that I see in all, all of those women. <laughs> and there is a level of commitment productivity um, that allows people to operate at, at kind of like a high level where you're like, 
you've had this company for 20 years. This is going to continue. You are able to manage that. So when you say that you realize that you weren't giving it your all, what does that actually mean? Like what changed between the time that you were like, I own this and this is how much I'm doing now? So essentially when I said yes, we humbly restructured with 40 people. So it's a bit of a chart of up and down. Wow. So, so you went from 150 to 40 then? Yes. And we humbly restructured with 40 people, moved, um, downsized the factory to one of the factories that we had outgrown uh, years ago. That tile that was broken when we left was still broken. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, and it's a bit of a blur because now I think back and I just put my head down. And I was scared. I mean, we are all scared and because... You know, you've got, we want, you have 40 mouths to feed and to make sure you bring in enough business. And you have to remember 10 years ago, people did not care where products came from. They weren't big on quality. It was all about what's cheap and cheerful, right? Fast fashion is was on the rise during so, that time. Let me ask you about this fast fashion and and the fact that nobody cared about where their fabrics and, and apparel came from. Where was the, where did the decision come from to change the, you know, the concept and to repackage the message around it. You know, where, when did you start? I mean, right from the beginning, the reason why we restructured was for our makers. How does that look like? We need to have jobs and I need to share that story. And it's not a pity, but we're still bringing, you know, great, we're still bringing great quality to, to the table um, value until this day, lowest, we're not typically the lowest cost provider we're typically the most well-valued. So instead of dumbing down product to keep a price point, we'd rather just give you more value and be able to maintain the integrity. And so when you're when you're thinking about, you know, from the jump, when we humbly, and I love the fact that you use humbly restructured, I've never heard that phrase like that before. When you're talking about at that moment, we switch things around, you know, did you have a spreadsheet where you Having, were you whiteboarding? Were you eating over dinner? I mean, how does this, how does this like magical process come up where you're making this decision? You know, when, when you take a look at your, your presence online, Kathy, I mean, you are a champion of this cause and this mission, this mission and this message. You know, you're a champion for women. You're a champion for entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, you're a champion for multicultural voices. Um, you're very outgoing. You do TV shows, radio shows. I mean, you're out there speaking, you know, on, on public podiums. So somehow, some kind of way, and maybe it was just a natural process of this, you know, you realizing you're, that you're a leader and you were like, I'm going to be speaking about this. But, you know, when did it come to you to say, you know what, we're actually going to completely change everything right now? Was it a right now or was it a slow evolution to that space? It was definitely a slow evolution. Okay. I would say... You know, 10 years ago, I don't think I knew what I was doing. Mm, okay. <laughs> People you know, don't admit that a lot. I uh, love that. This I, is the Honest Field Guide podcast. I love it. Yeah, I think it was it was just intuitive. Mm-hmm. Everything up until I would say about 2014, um, and I specifically say 2014, and I know I've, I've mentioned to you the EY Winning Women program in the past, but for me, that is when... I feel like they discovered my voice for me. Like they helped me help discover my voice because prior to, if you asked me what I did, I'd say I make t-shirts, sweatshirts, and track pants. I didn't say, you know, I'm in the supply chain of fashion. Mm. I think everyone has a voice, but 
peeling back the layers to discover and own your voice, that is very empowering. I know I am not the same person that I was, you know, five years ago. You know, fast forward now, 10 years later, and we've almost tripled our headcount. We've more than tripled our, you know, workspace. That goes through a lot, and a lot I have to credit is to my business partner, my father, because that's operations, right? Mm -hmm. Um, We're a great team, I feel like, because we represent kind of the opposite of each other in terms of gender. Mm-hmm. Um, he's, he's quite, he's not as, I'm very North Americanized. He's still very traditional in his mindset. Um, I mean, he's very, he's open to new ideas, but there's still that, you know, there's, there's cultural nuances that, that it's important to him that we, we hold on to even the language you know, he speaks English and he's, he's great. He's actually a self, self-taught English. Like, it's, it's amazing. Like, he's just my hero. Um, when I speak of him, it, I get choked up because he's been a huge inspiration for me to just keep driving it when things are, you know, not the way we'd like it to be. Because he's gone through so much adversity and my mother has as well. And um, so I, I think maybe that's the drive that keeps me going. You just never give up. You know, you, you mentioned that I speak and, and do all this stuff. It makes me very uncomfortable. But what I have learned is I need to constantly put myself in uncomfortable situations so I can learn. Mm-hmm. And that's what I continue to do. You know, we're talking about women-owned businesses and, and entrepreneurs. And I know for me... Um, Confidence is a big thing. I don't think I had half the confidence that I do now. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I'm still working at it, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. What changed in that? Because that's something that... So when I look at your brand, when I, when you said, this is my company, Redwood Classics, you knew what it was. You had a voice and it's very apparent in the branding and even on your professional Instagram page for you as an individual. Mm-hmm you've committed to that branding and your brand story. The leap to get there, even as you were evolving, when was the point where you're like, we need professional photography. Our Instagram is going to be consistent. Here's our story and this is how we're going to pull it through. Like what happened in that? What was that thing that you said they discovered your, helped you discover your voice? For me, and, and it's a lot of it is intuitive and it's also my North Star. Mm-hmm. My North Star is to to humanize business, to humanize the apparel industry, right? So a lot of it just kind of fell naturally um, and opportunities. And I think we're very fortunate because we, we have a story. Can you talk a little bit about um, any kind of experiences you had, um, you know, as a daughter of a very successful businessman and, and how that influenced and impacted not only your business relationships, but potentially even the way that you communicate, you know, when you're, when you're um, out in the world as a, as a businesswoman. Did, it, did he have, what kind of an impact did he have on you? Because there are women that have companies that don't have any male mentors at all. They don't even know what that looks like. And I don't know necessarily that 
they're having very big success because they're not really interacting with, um, you know. I, I, that's a hard one. Is it? My father is just, he's very authentic. He's just himself. Okay. He doesn't try to be anything he's not. And the one thing I have learned from him is just own up to your weaknesses, which I guess we hear a lot. You know, men tend to be more um, chest pumping and whatnot. But I don't think all men are like that. For me, maybe growing up, I'm the only child. I'm I'm the son, I'm the daughter. So, you know, I had to shovel the snow outdoor. Mm -hmm. Um, I also helped my mom with the laundry. And at a very young age, I was always encouraged to be independent. But that was out of necessity. You have to remember, again, the humble beginnings. And my mother at that point, um, growing up, she didn't speak English. Like, you want to talk about a strong woman? My mother is so strong. She had, she hasn't had much of an education. So when she came to Canada, of course, she was working and she had to take care of me, um, manage a household. And when my father had, you know, when, when the business was, was more comfortable where she didn't have to work, she went to high school and got her ESL. Wow. Yeah. I say that a lot. I've been saying that a lot. <laughs> I'm going to say something else at some point. <laughs> yeah. That's incredible, right? Mm-hmm. She That's didn't incredible. need to, but she went and did it because that was her determination. She wanted to better herself. So I don't know if it's, you know, genetics. I get it from both of them or it's socialized in me. Um, but going back to my upbringing, yeah. Like, I mean, when I was, I remember I used to have to call telephone companies because we moved quite a bit because we were fortunate enough that the factory was growing. Mm-hmm. Um, so we would move from one neighborhood to another. Um, but they worked a lot even when we started being more comfortable. So it was always me that was calling the the, the electric company. I'm the one who's changing the cable, like the address. And I was doing this at the age of like 11 or 12. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sounds about right. It is socialized. And that's yeah. that's a because a lot of the ways that we see in trends of women and men acting in business is a result of American culture and the way people are socialized to behave. And so when someone comes from the outside or from a different perspective where you do have to be all those things, you're not even seeing, even if they are subversively trying to put you in that place, you're just like, this, I don't yeah. speak the same language, puns intended. You know what I mean? <laughs> You have an eye for growth and a mind for growth um, for your business. How do you keep feeding that? Because some people, when they get one big client, they're like, we're good. You know, you don't, you mentioned you don't work on a, there's no guaranteed contracts, but how do you stay hungry to keep trying to find different avenues for your company to have different, you know, streams of revenue? You have the private label, you could do wholesale, there are other things. I get a sense that you're trying to find ways to innovate a lot, which is not something that I hear a lot about in people in that field. Yes, and that's that's part of the issue, right? Um, because labor is, is very challenging. It's skilled labor. And because everything has gone offshore, we've arguably, you know, uh, missed two generations of makers here. And so right now I feel a sense of urgency because um, on one hand, my makers, our makers are, are, are aging, right? On the other hand, we've got a generation that is finally understanding the need to consider conscious consumption, which is very encouraging. 
So what's keeping me on my toes is saying, how do we marriage the two and and fill in that space? We're really very much about niche. I always look for niches. You know, we don't have to be the biggest player. We don't have to be <laughs> the loudest. What I'd like to do is is really be recognized as a, a leader within a niche market um, and top of mind. I mean, the reason that you see Esther and I grinning like Chelsea Katz because I say niche a lot. She says niche a lot, and this is the she loves is niche. A place I mean, of niches. it just really is. So we love the word niche. <laughs> That's just a side note, but but I but I want to ask you a question. Um, when you said you've lost two generations of makers, can you please elaborate a little bit on what that means? Because that sounds like something really horrible happened. I mean, you've lost two generations of makers, and the ones you have now are aging. Well, what that means is, um, from a policy's perspective, because consumers, we were always focusing on fast fashion. So there's no development of skills, right? And there's no jobs. Factories are closing down. You know, 20 years ago, um, maybe your neighbor may have had a hand and, and had a, you know, part in the shirt that you're wearing. Maybe your mother. But nowadays, it's all focused. It, it, everything has gone offshore. I do a lot of factory tours um, for for institution, education, like fashion schools. And, you know, sometimes the kids come in and they're like, oh, like there's humans doing this. Wow. Right? It's and not robots. Yeah, it's not robots. Um, so that's why, you know, in my marketing, we always talk about the handcraftedness. I think that's really, really important. I think humanizing, humanizing business is something that we don't do enough of, given how fast the world has is turning and growing. Technology has enabled us to, to do so much more. When I hear the passion that you talk about your makers with, those are the type of stories that's going to make someone say, I'm going to pay $50 for this instead of $20 for the cheaper version from Walmart or from, from wherever that mm-hmm. doesn't have a face or feeling or name. That just happened intuitively. And I think it was always wanting to highlight and celebrate our makers. That's why we started, um, you know, on, if you follow us on our social, we do a hashtag Factory Friday. And and because it's about educating too, right? right? You need to educate your ultimate end buyer and consumer so they understand where the products are coming from. And I also have to think about how can I compete? I don't know if there's a lot of offshore makers or if there's any other makers that are really sharing consistently, you know, behind the scenes stuff. Are you the designer as well? I mean, are you actually the source or the person that is um, picking... Everything, colors, mm-hmm. fabrics, consistency. I mean, just, no. you know, are you, what, what is that? Because we specialize in private labels. So when we're doing custom apparel programs for, you know, designers or, or brand names, they already have that filled out. What we do, I think, is we're able, we enable their design and creative team um, to bring their concept to fruition. And that we do that through our co-creation lab, or right. AKA our sample lab. Well, yesterday at WeBank, you had on the cutest jumpsuit, jumpsuit with a heart on the left side, and the bottom were, were rolled up, and it was just so comfortable and adorable. And you were walking around the conference, showing everyone. And you had a suitcase full of amazing, cute things. <laughs> you had these amazing mittens that we, you know, the were putting yeah. on. And I just, I just feel like when I looked inside that suitcase and I saw what you're wearing, everything was curated and designed and mindfully chosen. 
with care and love. I, I did. You didn't have to say a word. I looked at it and I thought, oh my gosh, I felt like Santa Claus. I was like, I felt like you were Santa. <laughs> like this is, you know, I mean, look at all these beautiful gifts. I mean, it felt like everything was a gift. That's a feeling I have from what you're doing. It's a gift. Thank you. Um, I do. I Yes, that suitcase was definitely curated. Um, I wanted to be able to show the best of what our our factory can do and, and bring to fruition and at all the different levels of, of, um, of expertise, right? So we did, I did show the Redwood by Prelove collaboration where we're taking vintage, you know, old sweaters and we're upcycling them and every pair is unique. Um, and then the, you know, there was a t-shirt that was custom dyed because we do have a small dye house facility under our roof as well. So, you know, in that in that suitcase, I really wanted to show um, a lot of the corporates that were at the conference how you can be creative. And our minimums are low, and we're doing you know quicker turnovers, right? Um, that was the whole point of of that suitcase, and it's hard because I can't bring a factory around. Give us an idea of some of the companies that your company has collaborated with. Okay, so we specialize in private label. Um, we have worked with Todd Snyder by Champion. Um, that has been a long time collaboration. He's he's phenomenal. He really appreciates our 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 craftsmanship. Mm-hmm. Um, and Preloved, uh, which is a Canadian eco brand, where we take vintage clothing, deconstruct it, and give it a brand new life. Um, we've saved over fifty thousand sweaters from landfill. Over a hundred thousand wool pair pants from landfill and um, we're proud to I really want to take Redwood by Prelove that collaboration and now um, have a larger scale effect by hoping that corporations will also embrace this type of branded merchandise right because it's aligned with the values of sustainability and handcraftedness we just had the greatest conversation didn't we Esther that was really inspiring amazing inspiring uplifting Beautiful, emotional swirls everywhere. Kathy Chang, the president of Redwood Classics, which is an amazing company in Canada, Toronto specifically. Yes, but I just want to add that. Yes, add. Although we act local, yes. we do think global. So, <laughs> And that is the hashtag for this episode. Exactly. <laughs> act local, think global. I'm Esther Coro. And I'm Ginger Birkenbuehl. And we'll see you next time. The Honest Field Guide podcast is produced by Burke Creative, written and created by Ginger Birkenbuehl and Esther Coro. The podcast is recorded in the innovation and technology capital of the Midwest, Chicago, at Stomping Ground Studios in Ukrainian Village. Original music is written by and provided courtesy of Utah Carroll. Follow Honest Field Guide on Instagram and Twitter. The opinions expressed on the Honest Field Guide are opinions only and only represent the views of Ginger Birkenbuehl and Esther Ikora. E.